The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. 70% of the country uses Facebook each month. 50% of Americans under 35 check it first thing in the morning. By 2015, people will have tweeted more words than in every book ever printed. A third of all marriages in the United States now begin online. Is it just uh, stating the obvious, kind of nailing it down? Social media has become essential to the fabric of our society. We know that companies and the government are using our data, sometimes in ways we're uncomfortable with. Well, in his new book, Dataclism, Who We Are When We Think No One's Looking, OK Cupid, co-founder Christian Rudder, puts big data to a different use, helping us to understand human nature. Because we live so much of our lives online, Rudder says digital data can show us how we fight, how we love, how we age, how we change, what we really want. So we're going to talk with Christian Rudder today on the program. He joins us on the line. Welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. I'm super happy to be here. Thanks for being with us. We're also joined by USU philosophy professor Charlie Hineman. He recently applied the ideas of uh, Immanuel Kant, as a good philosopher would do, to our digital world in proposing a personal ethics of uh, clicking. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. This is on something called Three Quarks Daily. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a blog that is a, a collection of articles on art, science, uh, philosophy, gossip, politics. Yeah. So we'll talk about that. Um, you throw in John Stuart Mill, and uh, you know, as a good philosophy professor would do. Let's start with Christian Rudder. Uh, so the idea for this book is that we know about big data. We know that the government companies are collecting data from us on a regular basis. You're turning the use of big data around to, uh, I guess, to analyze who we are as a people. Yeah, I, you know, me, I was, I was one of the co-founders of a dating site called OkCupid, and, and that was 10 years ago. Me and three friends started it. And, and just in the course of running the site, we, you know, we, we would analyze data all the time to try to figure out what people were going to do, like who, who they wanted to sleep with, who they liked, who they didn't like, how they defined themselves, how this person's definition differed from another, and so forth, you know, just, just trying to, to match people up. And, you know, we, we did. We learned a lot about human nature almost as a byproduct. And it, and it occurred to me that people working uh, at Facebook or Google or Twitter, um, and, you know, my peers, I guess, were researching different data sets that could answer questions that we had no visibility into. You know, okay, Cupid knows nothing about a marriage because, you know, it's almost all single people on the site. Um, so I wrote the book to, to tie together all of this sort of human interest, uh, this human interest work, um, and yeah, just just show the the human side of the data story because, as you as you said, the the kind of the profit motive um, that's been covered a lot in the business pages. Uh, the front page has tons of stuff about the NSA, and I just wanted to uh, I just wanted to address. I, I felt like something that could affect that, 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 that everyday people care about race, sex, love, hate. You know, this kind of thing. And we'll get into that. Very interesting uh, findings in the book. By the way, uh, the, what data set did you use? Uh, OK Cupids. Were you able to go? Wider than that? Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I used OkCupid's. I used several other dating sites to corroborate things that I found on OkCupid. I used uh, my own kind of self-generated Twitter, uh, not, not generated from my account, but self-gleaned self, uh, Twitter data set. But then I also um, I used Google Trends and Google, Google Ngrams, which is their catalog of all the books that have ever been printed or that they've scanned. Um, but I also reference a lot of work by other people who have kind of similar inside knowledge uh, in a way that I have on OkCupid. There's this guy 
Seth Stevens Davidovitz, who works at Google, and and he so he has really good insight into search data. Um, Facebook has a kind of world class data team to to mine their stuff. So I folded in a lot of other people's work too. I want to uh, to tackle up front this this idea of privacy, and um, you know we know that companies are are mining our data. Government, as you say, you know NSA and, that, and those sorts of things have been been looked into. We've talked about it here on this program. Um, but there's been a, a couple of uh, interesting, uh, I guess, controversies, storms about experiments, actual social experiments that are being uh, being made. Uh, Facebook was recently, uh, you know, uh, they, they sort of blithely uh, revealed this as a part of their research, that they uh, perform experiments. Uh, and you and OKCupid performed a few experiments. You've had some pushback on that. I wonder if you'd talk about the, the stuff you did at OKCupid. Sure, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely happy to talk about anything, and, and I think blithely is a word that could apply to our uh, rollout of the, of the experiments as well. But, but before I address that head-on, I, you know, I just want to make clear, like the stuff in the book, it, there's no experiments. That it, and, and experiments and um, privacy, are, are they're related in a way, but they're also very different. I mean, regardless of how these experiments on either OkCupid or Facebook or on any site uh, are run, nobody's privacy per se is being being tampered with in any way. I mean, these are all aggregated. Um, it's a different thing. Like people are changing the experiment A and B on a website, and then and then you have the kind of privacy issue, which itself has a kind of all different shades too. But just just so you or your listeners are clear. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. Point well taken yeah. because the the data that you're looking at is is aggregate data. Yeah, uh, and, no, and no yeah, the experiments yeah. Are, are are in some ways. Um, the, the the least they, they put privacy in jeopardy insofar as it has ever put in jeopardy the least out of all the things that happen at, at a website you know I mean but but anyway to, to answer your question yes we we did um we did and and we do all the time perform experiments of, of varying degree I mean from down to changing the text on a button and showing it to some users and seeing what you know what gets more clicks to changing the text in an email to changing the placement of a photograph or any of this kind of thing but the experiments that that I think drew the most controversy for us were um, you know we tested our, our kind of standing algorithm against essentially a placebo and and our our standing algorithm is is you know in, in the real world there's tons of ways if you ask your best friend like hey I'm single who do you think it'd be good for me that person has several different heuristics that they might apply. You know, birds of a feather, I'm going to find somebody like you. Uh, opposites attract, I'm going to find somebody that I think you might like that's different than you. Or the, you know, there's also the kind of old world way of looking at, 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 at matching, you know, arranged marriages. You come from a good family, you come from a good family, here you go, you guys are together now. This is almost like a genetic or, or almost a business-type relationship. So anyway, OkCupid's okay, is more close, is closer to the birds of a feather, but we tried the placebo against it just to see... Um, you know, well, to, to prove that, that that was actually better than any of these other methods, and there's there's way more than the three I just named. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we did notify, it was a very small group, really the minimum uh, sufficient group that we could test A, B against, and we notified them all shortly thereafter. Um, and also, you know, in the same way that you can ask a friend and get a sort of different opinion of who's going to be good for you, you know, people ask, okay, Cupid, what's your opinion of who's going to be good for you? And our answer does change over time. We're always tweaking it as we learn things. And so this was just part of a spectrum of, of all that stuff. And that said, uh, you know, we presented it on our blog, and, and, and the blog is always cavalier no matter what the topic. It's meant to be humorous in a way. And so, you know, I understand how people took what we did different – or <laughs> took what we did, how they did um, because of the way we presented it. But, I, you know, and I probably would take that back if I had to do it over again. 
Uh, hi, Christian. This is Charlie, the, the hi, Charlie. philosopher. Hi. And I just read your book recently, and, I, and I'm looking forward to a chance to talk about it. It's a really fascinating book. But I find it interesting that, in a way, uh, you guys have been doing what you could look at retrospectively as experiments. I'm thinking of the Love is Blind event that you describe in your book, where uh, you guys took out uh, people's photos for a day or so for some period of time. And then afterwards, you found these surprising results of what that, whether that made a difference or not in terms of successful dates and so on. I mean, you, you guys didn't do that as an experiment. You did it because you were promoting something else, and it was kind of a, a fun public event, something you experimented with, which didn't work out in some ways. But right. it did work out in providing you with a really interesting experiment, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, you know— I, <laughs> To, look, to, to take it all the way back to the origin, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Starting the site in the first place was an experiment. You know, we, we, were, we know a lot about computers. We know as much about human nature as any other person. But, you know, as I'm sure you guys know, there's no canonical way to bring two people together. So we just took our best shot at it and created a dating site. Um, and, and the experiment that you're referring to, you know, we did. We took out the pictures site-wide for a day, um, which, of course, the users were confused and kind of upset. But we did find that the people who bothered to stick around, you know, they actually had better, kind of more deeper, if you want to call it that, conversations. The conversations led to, uh, went, long, went on longer and exchanged contact information more often uh, when there were no pictures to, to, to go on, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, people were happy when they came back, too. It's, it's one of these things online, at, at, you know, uh, Users prefer a way that isn't always necessarily in their own best interest, but of course we have to have a site that people trust and like. So we, you know we have to have photos on, on a dating site. That that particular experiment, you could call it, or you know whatever you call it, uh, I don't know. Well, it was just heartbreaking to me. Uh, the, the the end of it, very disappointing about who we are as a people, because I think you you write that as soon as you put the pictures back up, a lot of these conversations have been deep and meaningful, faded away. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, we, we, when we kind of, quote, turned the lights back on at, like, 5 p.m., which we did, like, an hour earlier than we were going to because people were complaining so much. Uh, um, yeah, the, the people who had been talking sort of in the dark, so to speak, kind of were like, oh, wait, this is what you look like? I'm gone, you know, so, so they did, they all, they all cut out. I, I will say, you know, I, I, uh, it definitely the, the kind of 10 years I've been running a dating site, uh, it has definitely made me a more cynical person, and even in spite of myself, I, I just had a daughter, so that's kind of refreshed some of my hope for humanity. Let's see where it goes. <laughs> so it has made you more cynical running a dating site. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure you guys in, in your lines of work, you you get feedback of a type that uh, you feel like doesn't understand what you're doing, or or you watch people doing one thing when they say they're thinking another, and then they go do, you know, they, they, they think they're doing A, and then they go do B, and B is invariably less flattering to them. Uh, or, or they, or, you know, in, on, on a dating site, people just really care about looks, no matter how much somebody is going to say, you know, I'm looking for a soulmate, I, I, you know, I want to share a life with a person and all this stuff. They really, that the, if it's a man browsing and he's straight, the, the woman in the bikini is going to get the message uh, that's kind of how it goes, you know. Even without any text, you have a, you have an yeah. example of a picture of a bikini-clad woman uh, hugging some yep. driftwood. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, some of the pictures are pretty funny. But a, a totally funny anecdote about that person uh, is that uh, I have heard from a friend of hers because I, I kind of tried to track down permission from this photo that I think she got married to someone on OkCupid. But oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that, that okay. that's 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 what I remember. I, I you know this is kind of. Right. 
guess <laughs> I was about to say off the record, which is an, a, a ridiculous it, concept on it's, radio. It, but, it's uh, just between but, us uh, and, and our listeners. Right, just yeah. between us. But but I, that's what I that's what I heard. Let me put it that way. Christian, the so. line that I uh, found most haunting in your book is uh, your inversion of Mick Jagger's line that you know on the internet, it's really easy to get what you want, but getting what you need now that's a different story, right? Right. And right. and and I'm sure that some of your cynicism comes from people who are kind of greedily trying to satisfy what they want and then your data will help to kind of demonstrate what in fact people end up needing although they may be the last people ever to realize that right i I think yeah you're you're totally that's an excellent way to kind of expand on that point i mean i i um you know there there are a lot of great things about the internet and and even online dating for sure you know i wouldn't be in the business if i didn't fundamentally believe in it but at, at the same time you know there is a downside. It helps you meet all these people you might never have met. It helps you kind of navigate the, the single world maybe more easily than you could have 15, 20, 30 years ago. At the same time, you, you, it does, it, it, there is, there is a, I, I think of it kind of as like the, uh, the Doritos effect. You know, Doritos are delicious, uh, and, and you, you will eat them and eat them and eat them because they just taste so good or, or you know, whatever your chosen junk food is. It is not necessarily the best thing for you to eat all the time, you know. So, um it's uh, it's one of these things. I think people and people increasingly are are, are able to strike a balance uh, themselves. I think with the rise of things like Snapchat, especially just vis-a-vis, say something like Twitter or Facebook, um, it, it's you know there, there's a certain type of person who loves to broadcast themselves and be connected very publicly. There's another type of person who um, wants to be in touch with their friends, but doesn't necessarily need to tell the entire world, you know, what they had for breakfast or where they're going tonight or whatever. And, and I think it's cool to see alternatives emerge. We're, uh, most of us are online, heavily online these days. We're talking about that. And uh, uh, Christian Rudder, who's one of the uh, co-founders of uh, OkCupid, has written an interesting new book. He's taken this big data um, and turned it a spotlight on us as a people. The book is called Dataclism. Uh, we're also talking with uh, Charlie Heneman, who is a USU philosophy professor. He has recently proposed a personal ethics of clicking. And before we go to the break, let me uh, just quote, uh, Charlie, your first line from your blog post. Very interesting. We'll get into this uh, when we come back from the break. It says, Charlie, every click, now that every click we make is watched, archived, and metadatified, it's time to start thinking seriously about a personal ethics of Internet consumption. This goes beyond mere paranoia and worry over what others might think of what you're taking an interest in. Each click, in fact, is a tiny vote, proclaiming a con- to content providers that you support this sort of thing and hope to see more of it in the future. And as always, we should vote responsibly. More on that, more with Christian Rudder following this break. With gas prices the lowest they've been in years, consumers seem to be pretty happy about the savings. Love it. I'm pretty happy. Love them. This is like a, it's like a bonus for me. You know? It's like a, it's like a raise. But with these low prices come some hidden costs. In UPR's new series, The Costs of Oil, will bring you stories from places like eastern Utah, where the local economy depends on drilling. We'll look into what low prices at the pump are doing to Utah's already notorious air quality, the state budget, and the push to develop renewable energy. Tune in February 9th through the 20th for The Cost of Oil, a UPR news series. I'm Fred Child, and I recently had the rare experience of being greeted by three dozen young singers all at once. 
Hi, Fred. Hi, Young People's Chorus of New York City. They will join me in the PT studio. We'll hear about their remarkable history and mission and their great sound as they sing music by Stephen Foster and Robert Schumann on the next Performance Today from APM. Wednesday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're all online today, some of us very heavily. Uh, some of us, uh, you know, put what we had for breakfast online. Uh, as we were just saying before the break, uh, for to, to nail this down, 70% of the country uses Facebook each month. By 2015, people will have tweeted more words than in every book ever printed. Uh, and of special interest, of course, to uh, OKCupid. We're talking with co-founder of OKCupid, Christian Rudder. A third of all marriages in the U.S. now begin online. And uh, in the blurb to the book, uh, I think I like this line, that means that one in three children in the class of 2032 will have been facilitated by an algorithm. Uh, so, um, Christian Rudder, uh, who has a background in mathematics from Harvard, he's written uh, a book. It's called uh, Dataclism. Um, the subtitle, Who We Are When We Think No One's Looking. And it's using big data to shine a spotlight on us, ourselves. We'll get into talking about a lot of that. Uh, and he tackles issues of racism and, uh, and other things. Uh, in the book, we're also talking with Charlie Heineman, who is USU philosophy professor, and he has used the ideas of Manuel Kant to our digital world, applied that to our digital world, proposing a personal ethics of clicking. Before we get to that, so Christian Rudder, before we get into uh, Charlie Heineman's uh, personal ethics of uh, clicking, I want to get to this issue of, of privacy. Um, you say something interesting about privacy, that in the future, opting out of having all your data collected by corporations, government, etc., may be impossible, unless you're completely off the grid, and uh, that may not be such a, such a bad thing. And you talk about um, this, I guess, this bargain that most of us, I think, know, that if you go on a site, especially one that uh, doesn't have advertising, um, that the, the corporation has to get something, so they're, they're getting our data. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I definitely hope that, that people become, or continue to get more savvy about that. You know, when you, you know, Twitter doesn't cost anything, any, anybody anything, and neither does Facebook, except that they take what you do and, you know, they, they try to show you products that, that are going to appeal to you based on that behavior would be, of course, how they put it. And I think that's that's a legit way to put it, you know. Um, and uh, But at the same time, like, it, it is... I don't use these things all that much, not because I'm necessarily like a privacy nick, but just just because I, I just don't have that performative element in my personality that I think it's something like Twitter for sure definitely requires. Um, but even so, the fact that that soon people will be able to sort of impute things about me just from the people I'm connected to, even if I don't do anything, they'll they'll say, oh, I, you know, Christian's obviously a white dude. This is friend that looks like this, and you know, I do like things using Facebook's uh, tool. And and um, some guys in the UK looked at at people's like patterns, you know, didn't look at their friend networks, didn't look at the photos, just the likes. And, um, you know, this was a couple of years ago, they, they would, you know, 95% accuracy could guess a person's race, um, 85% accuracy could guess whether they were gay or straight, 60% accuracy, uh, they could tell if your parents got divorced before you were 21. So it, it's, uh, you know, and then, then again, Facebook is relatively new. Um, in 20 years, uh, I, I don't know, if people live their entire lives clicking on things, it will be uh, intense to say the least what, 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 
someone would be able to tell from your Facebook likes alone. So we're just in the beginning phase. This is going to get much better or much worse, depending on your point of view on this. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the science, um, my hope, and hopefully that comes through in the book, is that, that we can use this stuff uh, to learn about human nature. I think the the... the I think also, but at the same time, as a kind of counterbalancing force, people are getting more savvy. I think Snapchat is a perfect example. I, I think, um, you know, Charlie's argument that we need to think more about what we click on and how we spend our time is a really good one. I mean, especially in the uh, in the aftermath of this, this J-Law thing on Reddit, you know, it's just like, it's really hor- I mean, I used to check Reddit all the time, but then I'm like, this is just horrible. You know, like this community, if this is how it's going to go down, like I, I don't want to really be part of this. And I think I think people, you know, all the clickbait and all of this kind of stuff, it's, it's you know, and the Internet is going through a lot of growing pains right now. I feel like it's feeling its power in a way that, that it wasn't even like three or four years ago um, to, to make kind of make narratives out there in the world you know these things can start on twitter and it, you, it ends up on good morning america these days you know and uh, um hopefully over the next few years uh the, the internet will there, there will be in, in there, there will be some maturity in a kind of metaphorical sense uh to, that equivalent to that power that i think it's getting now yeah i think that um that's a really good way of putting it. And it, it seems to me that right now people have varying degrees of consciousness about what they're doing on the web. So that if they're going to OkCupid or if they're going to Facebook or if they're going to some place that requires them to fill out a survey about what they like and what they don't like, they really ought to know that that data is going to be used in one way or another. Uh, and then there's a, a second kind of class of all kinds of stuff that happens where People are doing it for fun, and they don't really realize how it's getting used. And the example that comes to mind is on Facebook, you'll sometimes have these uh, <laughs> invitations uh, to, you know, to be told what Disney princess you are, right, or you know right. what what great novel you are, or something like that. And people fill out these questionnaires, thinking it's harmless fun, and and often it is, but sometimes it's actually uh, being used sometimes in very nefarious ways. Um, gathering, you know, say your 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 mother's maiden name, that sort of stuff, uh, and then there's sort of stuff where you, you're actually filling out a survey and you don't realize it at all. You're just clicking on things that interest you, clicking on things that you like, um, but they're being presented to you in such a way that you're actually filling out a survey, right? That goes to automated algorithms that will send more of that stuff your way, and also send signals to content providers to say, hey, people like this, provide more of it. Right, I, I think that's a that that to me is is a point that really needs to be made, and I'll just I'll rephrase it too, mm-hmm. just to make sure that it's, it's, <laughs> it's clear. Like I can say this from the inside, you know, if you if you if there's a link that you see on a site, whether it's Huffington Post or Reddit, in certain ways, even though the content there is user generated, certainly mm-hmm. on OkCupid or or Facebook, I assume, uh, you know, if it's a link of a certain type, highly sexual content or controversial or political or whatever, you click on it. That is a vote for seeing more of that stuff. It, it's not just, hey, the readership for that one article went up. It's that just like, well, to go back to my Doritos analogy here, if, if, if people are buying Cool Ranch Doritos, they're going to make more Cool Ranch Doritos and, and try to find uh, more flavors that taste like Cool Ranch Doritos, you know, and that the Internet companies are the exact same way. Yeah. So, Charlie, you propose a uh, – you go at the work of a Manuel Kant. You, you propose a categorical, categorical Internet imperative. And this is essentially what you're, you know, to, to uh, well, explain it first and then, then talk about this this vote and how, how you right. think this might move the needle just a little bit. Sure, yeah. I mean, Christian and I are sort of at different ends of the telescope. He's at the receiving end of all the big data that comes in, 
And uh, and, and I do want to say uh, to the listeners, if you haven't read Dat- Dataclism, you really should. I'm not getting a commission on it, by the way, but oh, it's really uh, it's really fun to read. And uh, Christian is sitting on a mountain of data that uh, should make any sociologist salivate. I mean, just millions and millions and millions of data points. Uh, and it's a fascinating read. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but I'm kind of looking at it from an individual's perspective. Here I am on the internet clicking on stuff. And I think for most of us, we just kind of um, click aimlessly. Oh, that looks interesting. What's that about? You know, that's sort of fun. And we don't realize uh, how we're implicated in these larger schemes that we were just talking about. And so the the categorical internet imperative, which really sounds imposing, is uh, that you should try to just click on the stuff that you can will your fellow citizens to click on, right? So that if you find yourself clicking on, oh, you know, uh, silly photoshopped pictures of Obama or something, right? Uh, you could, you, you might stop and ask yourself, is this where I want our civic discourse going, right? Is this really the, the sort of world that I want to be partly responsible for making? And um, I, I don't want to come off sounding like a prude that we should only be reading The Economist or something like that. Fun has its place, definitely. Um, but we might exercise a little bit of control over uh, feeding, you might say, the lesser angels of our nature uh, and, and doing at least our own little part to try to elevate our civic discussions. Uh, so uh, you're saying we have at least a little bit of an effect every time we, we yeah, make, right. make a click in, in terms of affecting the, the larger world, large digital world. By the way, use an example. I haven't gone here, but but you've, I guess, inversely uh, encouraged me. ICANN has cheeseburger.com. <laughs> yeah. In, in writing this article, I had to sort of pick on somebody, you know, because I thought if I'm writing this article, well, Charlie, what kind of stuff don't you like? And, and uh, I came up with that. And I feel a little bad. Look, it's a fun site, um, but it's it's just silliness. Um, and from a personal point of view, right, you might want to ask yourself, just to pick up on the Doritos example, what am I filling myself with, right? Am I filling myself up with I can has cheeseburger? Uh, and maybe a little bit of that is okay, but maybe we ought to, as individuals, just for our own sake, forgetting about the implications, for our own sake, we ought to sort of manage our mental diet a little better and and try to uh, feed better parts of ourselves. Um, Christian Rudder, what do you think about this? Do you, do you think this is going to move the needle at all? It's a big world, and, and as Charlie mentions in his uh, post, to where, you know, the... The high-minded stuff is uh, competing with bear baitings and adorable kittens attacking paper bags. <laughs> right. I mean, well, I think uh, two things. One, I think the needle will eventually move. I mean, we've seen that with television for sure. You know, I mean, I, I grew up on you know, 80s sitcoms, and I think the TV that captures the popular imagination these days is certainly maybe racier, uh, you know, Game of Thrones or whatever, but it's, it's just better kind of objectively from a quality standpoint. Um, and, and I think... Uh, Second, and I think something that will help that a lot is the fact that there are algorithms behind this stuff. Um, I, I know that that can often be a scary thing to think there's some computer making a decision about what you're going to see next. But in a way, um, if you're looking at stuff of a you know higher quality, however that's defined, it's going to try to show you more of that stuff. It's going to try to show other people more of that stuff, so that people can really vote you know with their mouth, basically, or vote with their feet, to use the older metaphor. Um, and 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 that that the effect will be felt all the faster that way. Um, in an older media uh, environment where, um, you know, it, it took surveys and, you 
know, years of Nielsen ratings or whatever to sort of change change how TV worked, for example, um, that that would happen much much faster online. If you just joined us, we're talking about our digital world. Uh, we're all online, many of us heavily so. Seventy uh, percent of the country uses Facebook each uh, month. Fifty percent of Americans under 35 check it first thing every morning. By 2015, people will have tweeted more words than every book ever printed. I don't know whether to be impressed or depressed by that statistic. <laughs> we're highly um, literate. We're, we're highly literate in, in a certain way, I guess. Uh, so Kristen Rudder, who is one of the co-founders of OKCupid, has written a new book, very interesting book, Dataclism, Who We Are When We Think No One's Looking. We're also talking with uh, philosophy professor at USU, Charlie Heneman. He uh, recently has proposed a personal ethics of clicking on the site Three Quarks Daily. If you'd like to join us here, you can join us on the telephone, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Uh, what are your concerns? Uh, do you have privacy concerns, or, or do you think it's okay? That's looks like that's the way the world is heading. That horse has left the barn, if I put it that way. Uh, so what does that mean for us, uh, all that data being collected on us? Christian Rudder has taken that, and he's shine, shining a light on us as a people, uh, human nature, in fact. Uh, you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Christian Rudder, I want to get into uh, some of your, your findings. Uh, one of the things that you uh, mentioned, I guess, it, you know, it's predictably, we don't like to think this, but we have sort of an idealistic view of ourselves, which can be easily punctured because the truth lies somewhere else. For example, you know, this, this experiment that you did with removing the photos and then putting them back on, uh, so we might think we're uh, less shallow than we are, but it turns out we're, we are shallow. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, racism. Uh, your, your latest uh, blog post on OK Trends, which is your, your blog, talks, talks about this. Right, yeah, and I also talk about it quite a bit in the book because it's obviously you know, I'm an American, and it's just something that's that's there in the in the kind of in in, in any American worldview. Is race plays a pretty big part in it. Um, so, yeah, it, on OKCupid, you know, we're um, well, we we ask people uh, questions all the time too, but now we not only kind of follow around what they're doing, uh, not on an individual basis, but in aggregate, we pay attention to what people click on, as, as Charlie has mentioned. But uh, we ask people questions. And when you ask people, you know, what do you think about interracial relationships? For example, interracial marriage, you know, it, you know, it's 2014, it, you're going to, almost everyone is going to say they're completely fine with it. Um, and in general, all the kind of interracial questions that we ask, you get the same sort of uh, open-minded uh politically correct, if you will, but open-minded type of answers. Um, and they're trending more and more open-minded. But then when you go back and you look at the data of who people actually try to go out with, who they hit on, who they message, there, there are very, very clear racial lines there. And th those lines don't seem to be moving um, at all, uh, at least in the kind of seven, eight years that we've really been tracking that stuff. Um, you know, black people uh, by, the, by people who aren't black uh, are just treated differently. They're underappreciated in a sense. Um, so, you know, and then nobody, I, I think very few of the people who sort of create that pattern by their clicks and their messages, whatever, you may or might not even be conscious of that pattern or certainly would never own up to having a sort of racially motivated um, type of clicking pattern at all. So it's, it's interesting. With, with this data, um, you can see what people are, are doing rather than what they are going to tell you that they want to do or you get kind of puncture that self-image like you put it. I wonder about this, and you write about this idea of uh, collective rage, where uh, we, we kind of get these mobs of, uh, you know, the people 
angry over something and then they move on. You experienced this, uh, I, I think there at OkCupid, uh, one of your colleagues uh, post, you know, tweeted something that was, uh, I think she regrets, and then, and then there was just a firestorm. Yeah, she she uh, she worked at IAC, which is the company that owns us, um, and she you know she tweeted a, I, I, I know her now, I've, especially I've come to know her in the process of the aftermath of this whole thing, and I, it was a joke I think about white privilege that didn't come off like a joke at all, uh, and it just went viral would be an understatement. It went you know epidemic basically <laughs> viral squared or something you know and and you know in 24 hours 60 million people had seen this tweet that she had sent out um you know that she thought maybe she was just sending to her friends or whatever people who kind of understood maybe what she was getting at um and you know when something this is kind of what i was saying with you something can start on twitter and end up on good morning america and this is exactly that kind of thing um where people were you know calling her family members and you know physically finding her out in the world and accosting her and it was just a pretty horrible situation and uh, and I, the, that happened to her, and then that, it's one of these things when somebody uses a new word, you start hearing it everywhere. So that happened to her, and I saw it happen to all these other people. So in the book, I, you know, I just kind of just try to expand on that phenomenon a little bit or to see what I can find in, in common with these things and then try to tie it back to, you know, research about sort of mom mentality and, and a kind of primordial urge, I think, to, to cast out the other, you know, because um, that, that definitely is what it feels like when you watch these things go down. Yeah, that sort of, uh, I mean, human phenomenon, of course, isn't new, but uh, but now with technology, we can make the numbers so much bigger, right, and uh, increase exponentially the chances of that rage, you might say, being communicated to somebody who's really going to do stupid things with it, stupid, violent things, harmful things with it. And this is one of the dangers, I suppose, with the way that the Internet feeds uh, uh more passionate sides of our of our persons because things can get out of hand so quickly and so dangerously and uh, often we don't even know when we're part of it right we we find something that makes ridiculous fun of a political figure we despise and we like it and we share it and help feed the fire right i kind of in the same way that um you know my colleague probably thought she was only talking to her friends when she tweeted her joke um you know, anybody who was offended by that joke or outraged by that joke probably thought their outrage was only going to their friends also, you know, and so you kind of, you, you, you only see this, you know, it's like the, the drops of water in a river, don't know that they're in a river in a certain way, you know, and here it, the, the, it, the tide or the water or whatever is, is just very, very violent. And, 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 and I think, yeah, you're right. Any, any individual person kind of has no idea of the scale of what's happening. Um, it, it, it is. It's definitely, especially when you go back and you're able to look at the data of how these things unfold. Um, it, it's pretty. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Christian, uh, I was wondering uh, in your book, what what finding did you? Was there any particular finding that really just sort of knocked your socks off that you just really were surprised by? Well, the the the, the Facebook kind of likes. And, and its ability to predict things. I was super shocked by that. I mean, the fact that somebody can make a guess about whether your parents divorced when you were a kid from what you like on Facebook, to me, is pretty insane. Um, that is amazing. Yeah. But uh, I, I guess actually speaking to something you sort of alluded to, or we, we kind of were joking about, um, you know, I myself found, and then independently, you know, linguists at, at, at UPenn and, and at ASU have found that, that uh, Arizona State, um, that the writing on Twitter is actually not that bad. It's surprisingly sophisticated. You know, the average word length is about 20% higher than in Shakespeare. Um, they somebody compared it to, to P.G. Wodehouse. It's higher than his his average word length. Um, but you know, even on a more sophisticated level, that these guys at ASU looked at uh, lexical density, which is sort of the proportion of meaning carrying words in a sentence, and they found that that 
you know, writing on Twitter has more lexical density, has a higher lexical density than, than magazine-level writing, than emails. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a weird counterintuitive thing because I don't tweet that much, and, I, you know, I turn up my nose as much as anybody else at LOL and OMG and all this stuff. But it's, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that the, the limitation breeds a certain amount of creativity and efficiency. Yeah, to say nothing of emoticons, but... Uh... Uh, right. Let's take a break. Uh, hold that thought, Charlie. Um, and uh, when we come back, we'll uh, we'll, we'll get to uh, uh, Charlie's next question. Charlie Heneman is with us. He's a USU philosophy professor. He's recently proposed a personal ethics of clicking. That's on uh, threequarksdaily.com, uh, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're talking with Christian Rudder, who is... Tomato. Uh, ...author of a new book, Dataclism, Who We Are When We Think No One's Looking. He's a co-founder of OKCupid. He's using big data to... Uh, uh, for a, a lofty goal, understanding human nature. Uh, he says, because we live online, digital data can show us a lot of things about us. We've been talking about that. And what we think the digital future is going to be. One question uh, I'll have following the break. This idea that interests me, I think, the most out of all of this uh, is the d- differences between real relationships, that you might call and Just using that word, I'm showing my bias. Relationships in the real world versus relationships online. What are the differences? I assume Christian Rudder has some thoughts on that as a co-founder of OKCupid. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Featuring lunch panini, salads, sandwiches, and soups. Full menu details at crumbbrothers.com. This week on This American Life. Okay, is there something going on? This has come up so often lately. There's the way the police see certain situations and the way the rest of us do. Like, for instance, a man being arrested who tells cops, I can't breathe, cops say, happens all the time. It's just part of the noise of making an arrest. Now, that's not something the public wants to hear the police chief try to explain when a young man just dropped dead in the back of a car. We try to bridge the gap this week. Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, a co-founder of OkCupid, one of the most popular dating sites, uh, Christian Rudder, and he's written a new book. He has a math background from Harvard, and he's uh, used uh, some of that uh, uh, wonk ability to uh, use big data to shine a spotlight on us, meaning all of us, human nature. The book is Dataclism, Who We Are When We Think No One's Looking. And we're joined in studio by USU philosophy professor Charlie Heneman, who recently applied the ideas of Immanuel Kant to our digital world and proposing a personal ethics of clicking. You're welcome to join the conversation. We have uh, about 10 minutes left in the program. So let me jump into this uh, question, Christian Rudder, that uh, I referenced before the break. And I might be revealing my age and my fuddy-duddyism, but uh, the further I get into technology, the less real I feel like relationships I have are. Uh, But it's a a gradation, isn't it? You have face-to-face relationships, and there's a lot of, I guess, um, complications there. You know, we we sometimes don't reveal ourselves even face-to-face. And telephone, and then, then you get in my way of thinking further away, uh, you know, online, so that, I guess, from from my perch and my age and demographic, I'm a little skeptical of 
online dating. That's where you make your living. Uh, so I wonder if you talk about that. The you know that, and maybe that's changing. Maybe young people feel that they have real quote unquote relationships uh, based online. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I think it's really important to distinguish. Like, the, the online dating is not this uh, like you've got mail type of thing where people have this you know across the country correspondence over months and then finally meet in person. I mean, people exchange a few messages and then they they get a beer, they get coffee, and decide if they like each other. Um, and you you don't find these you know online dating helps people get out and get together in person. That is the entire point of OkCupid. I know that sounds counterintuitive that we want our users to leave the site and go meet in person, but, you know, especially for us, we don't advertise. So the only the only way we get users is when someone's leaving the house and the roommate's like, hey, where are you going? I'm going on a date. Where? OkCupid, you know? And and so, um, and, you know, Match.com is the same way. Uh, they That's why these sites all talk about all the marriages that form there, because they really do work to get people in person. Now, obviously, I have a horse in the race, so you can take that with a grain of salt if you want. But it's you know, I'm 39. I'm I'm uh, just at that kind of cusp of where online dating has became the norm. You know, I had people older than me probably never tried it or it felt weird to meet somebody that you would only message with on a computer. But for people younger than me, it's just like Facebook or Twitter. If you want to connect with your friends, you use Facebook. If you want to find someone, a stranger, basically, to have a drink with or just, you know, I don't know, talk to in person, uh, you use a dating site these days. Yeah, I, I guess it's a, it's a tool. And then, then like yeah, you say, cool. you, you hope you hope people meet face to face. Obviously, if you're gonna, you know, yeah, mar- I mean, marry or have a relationship, it has to be face to face. Right. And again, please feel free to take what I have to say with a grain of salt. But you know that the, these these the people that meet through OKCupid and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them. You know, those relationships are just as real as you know, I met my wife in the kind of old way, basically at a party. Uh, you know, but and the, the the marriages that arise regardless of, of the seed or whatever, the, the tree is the same, you know? So, so, uh, it's, it's just kind of, it's still love or, or whatever it is, um, regardless of how the people came together. We're basically, we introduce people and that's pretty much it. And then I'm thinking about, you know, there's very old technology, ham radio operators, for example, you know, you, you never, you never meet in person, the person you're talking to half across the world, you do have voice. Uh, what about what about people? And this is a, admittedly, a, uh, I think, a small subset of uh, people. What about people who go to Second Life? You know, you you live in the virtual world. Well, that, that Second Life, I'm I'm not as current on that as I am on OkCupid, obviously. But I think Second Life is a kind of vestige of the way people used to use computers, which is to have an avatar, um, be someone that they're not, and meet people that they probably will never meet in person. Um, I think Facebook changed that that story for for the internet i think more than anything else you know because people were like oh it's cool i can connect with my friends these are people that i'll see tonight or that i saw yesterday and here i, I can talk to them with the you know in this kind of website environment too um so yeah i think i think the kind of that avatar world um obviously it serves a purpose for the people who use it but the the, the kind of social sites the more modern ones um they they, they have a much more a much more real-world purpose. You know, Facebook is explicitly built on your real life. You know, they, they want you to know these people and actually be friends. Um, they, they really don't want you to connect to strangers on Facebook. Right. Um, Christian, so. when, it, when, it, when I look at the, you know, Internet discussions of your book, a lot of times some of the first comments are, well, how can you trust the data that you find on OkCupid? Because aren't people just lying and posting pictures not of themselves but or Photoshop pictures of themselves or lying about their income or something like that? Uh, and so there's this suspicion that uh, I like your way of putting it that people are kind of taking the second life ethos and s- assuming that that's going to be any kind of internet uh, presence. Um, 
Right, and and I might have assumed the same thing myself. I mean, I, you know, I I didn't have email until I was in college. You know, I didn't grow up with this stuff either. You know, so so, but you know, I think there are two checks on on that effect. I'm, people definitely lie on OkCupid, and there's no way around it. I mean, mm-hmm. guys make themselves taller than they are. They pretend that they have more money than they do, just like they do in a bar or at a party or when they're trying to pick somebody up in the real world. You know, that that's just human nature, not not an online thing. Um, but but. They are ultimately answerable for what they say uh, on OkCupid because uh, they have to meet that person. Like if I sit here and pretend that I'm some strapping dude that I'm six feet tall or six 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 or something, and you know, I like I'm not that, and I show up on a date, and it's just over because the person that I match myself up with wants someone that's not me, which doesn't make sense. Um, but then second in the book, I, I knowing that people do misrepresent certain aspects of the personality, I really tried to stay on on looking at this observed behavior that the clicks, you know, that, that, that you've looked at yourself or that you're talking about in your piece. Um, because I think that is where you see people voting and doing things and really exercising their will uh, in a way that's different than what they happen to say about themselves or describe themselves or how they pose. We just have about three minutes left, and as we conclude things, let me start with uh, Charlie. Uh, in in your uh, in your post, actually, uh, I think this is on the comments, Three Quarks Daily, on the personal ethics of clicking, uh, you say that the fact is we go pretty much everywhere on the Internet for free, and that makes us careless. And so you're trying to encourage us to counteract that right, with, right. With, with thinking about what we're clicking on, and maybe that will influence people around us and, and what content we'll get. Yeah, gone are kind of the, the, you might say, the glory days where you just sort of anonymously skip your way across the internet, you know, clicking on anything that you like and no one knows and no one knows who you are and it's just sort of a, this uh, op- open and free world. Now you're getting watched, maybe not personally at a personal level, but you know, data is getting aggregated and uh, and it, it does affect you directly in terms of what kinds of, of ads are going to crop up on your sidebar and what sorts of suggestions you're going to get to click on next. So it's, it's uh, for better or for worse, not the free playground that it once was. And uh, just a, a, about a minute and a half for this, uh, Christian Rutter, to, to sum up, now that you've uh, you know, dived into this big data and uh, taken a look at the many questions about uh, who we are you know, when we think no one's looking, I don't know, do you, do you take any lessons forward for yourself or, or for us? What do you, what do you, what's the takeaway? Well, I mean, I think the takeaway is that... that um that all this stuff uh, is is at a point now where people are going to be able to look back on the data and, and understand w- what it is that people are doing. I know that's a very simple way to put it, but we spend so much time using these things on our phones, on our laptops. Now we can finally get that transparency, I think, that people crave uh, and, and understand like what, what how people use these technologies. What does it say about us? What does it say about society? Um, and I think you know that the book is about a beginning of a process. Like we're definitely not there yet. And, and I think with more collaboration with with academics and researchers, and and you know an, an ethical approach to this stuff, I think uh, there's just an incredible potential there. We'll leave it there. We've been talking with Christian Rudder, who's a co-founder of OKCupid. His blog is OK Trends. His book is Dataclism: Who We Are When We Think No One's Looking. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I enjoyed it. And Charlie Heineman is USU philosophy professor. He uh, recently applied uh, the ideas of Kant to our digital world and proposing a personal ethics of clicking. That's on uh, threequarksdaily.com. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for listening today. Commentator Thad Box. Three-fourths of Utah's public land, owned by we the people of the United States. Our land provides us water, wildlife, forage, timber, 
recreation opportunities, and open space. All Americans pay taxes toward management of land that provides income, amenities, and a lifestyle for those of us who are fortunate enough to live in the public land states. To our shame, politicians try to transfer millions of acres of federal lands to the states. In 2012, the Utah legislature passed a law demanding the United States to turn over 20 million acres of public lands to Utah this year. Our legislature threatens to use our money to sue our government and probably lose. The legislator's own counsel warns the bill may be unconstitutional. The State Enabling Act says the people of Utah do agree and declare that they forever disclaim all right and title to the unappropriated lands lying within the boundaries thereof. To transfer public lands to Utah would take an act of Congress signed by the President. That's not likely to happen. Congressman Rob Bishop has said that the states are better than the feds at managing public land. My experience tells me otherwise. For 60 years, I taught resource managers, used public land, and served on dozens of teams and commissions that evaluated both state and federal lands. In almost all cases, federal land is better managed than state lands. State land managers are often equally well qualified, but they're expected to generate money for the state even when the land use is not sustainable. The public lands belong to the people of the United States. Their taxes pay for its management. We who live in the West get to use them. What a deal. This is Thad Box. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today. Coming up next, Living on Earth at 10 o'clock. But first, a feature from our newsroom. For women in developing countries, menstruation can force them to put their lives on hold. UPR reporter Brina Kelly has the details on one organization trying to give back that time. One of the most prevalent problems in the developing world is one we rarely think about. For girls and women in impoverished countries, menstruation creates a monthly struggle. In Kenya alone, six out of ten girls lack access to feminine hygiene products. The result? These girls spend a week out of every month away from the classroom and the workplace. Instead, they spend it in their rooms. They miss about 60 days a year. Menstruation can be an uncomfortable topic for some. Fortunately, many people are not willing to stay silent on this issue. Anne Lewis is the president of the Utah chapter of Days for Girls. The organization is committed to restoring dignity to women worldwide through lasting feminine hygiene solutions. We give days back to girls by providing them with a very simple solution to a very huge problem. Feminine hygiene is something nobody talks about, yet it's something that every girl and woman in the world deals with. Days for Girls is a nonprofit organization headquartered in Washington State with teams in all 50 states. There are nine chapters in Utah alone including those in Logan, South Jordan, and Vernal. President-elect for the Kaysville Rotary Club, Adam Wills, helped put on an event for Days for Girls. This took place at the Davis Applied Technology College on Saturday, January 31st. On Saturday, we went from 9 a.m. till 6 p.m. and had you know, close to 1,000 people come throughout the day. Just to understanding that there were you know, young girls 
in other parts of the world that were having to drop out of school because they didn't have solutions for feminine hygiene was pretty pretty moving to everybody in our club. Our club tends to be predominantly male, and it was still something that resonated. We all have you know, daughters and wives. Connor Simonson is the student body president at Davis High School. He and his council played an integral role in making Saturday's event a reality. Simonson said it has made a lasting impression on his constituents. Basically, it keeps girls in school and not only affects them, but affects kind of their family and generations after that. It stops other problems like sex trafficking because in order for these girls to stay in school, they would have to basically sell their bodies to get a tampon. And so that's what they were having to do. And this stops that and it keeps them in school. Officials say Saturday was the most well-attended event that Days for Girls has ever had. really just made me proud to be a community member of Case Law. According to the World Health Organization, three out of every four African girls are sexually exploited before the age of 12. It is not uncommon for women and girls to exchange sexual favors for needed hygiene products. Lewis says in many of these countries, men control the markets. Oftentimes, the headmasters or the male teachers in the school have products in their offices and the girls are expected and sometimes required to go to these men and exchange sexual favors with them in order to receive pads so they can stay in school that day. Days for Girls is one of many organizations that provides hygiene kits to women in developing countries. Other groups include 50 Cents Period, Women Care Global, and the Protecting Futures program. Lewis says over 15,000 Utahns have volunteered to help build these kits in small groups and at events like the one in Kaysville. The kits provide sanitary, comfortable hygiene solutions and typically last three years. Lewis says when girls are fighting to become educated, those years make a big difference. For more information on the cause, visit upr.org. With Utah Public Radio, I'm Brenna Kelly. Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. This is Utah Public Radio. Stay tuned for Living on Earth coming up today at 10 o'clock, followed by a performance today at 11.